as I heard the testimony that was given and the song that was sung, I was reminded of uh, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. The person in this song that, uh, the person who was uh, giving her testimony in this song was one who learned that you could trust God. And therefore, uh, she walked bravely through life with God, whatever it would hold. And Hebrews 11, we know, is the great chapter on faith in the Bible. It tells about all kinds of people who live by faith. When Dean was in the hospital, we were reminded that in this chapter is the record of people who by faith won great, obvious victories for God. But there is also the record of people who by faith went through seeming defeat for God. And both the obvious victories and the seeming defeat in man's eyes were by faith. And it tells how uh, Abraham left everything that he had. He left his homeland and just wandered around in the land of Canaan with no foot of it really in man's sight to call his own by faith. Shows how Moses left all the wealth of Egypt and counted it as nothing to uh, perhaps have been the next pharaoh in the land by faith. All the riches of Egypt meant nothing to him. And then it shows later on how uh, others wandered around in caves and they were sawn asunder and so forth. And it was all by faith. Talks about those who from weaklings became strong men and mighty warriors. And it describes these people. And then in in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, it says, Surrounded then as we are by these serried ranks of witnesses, let us strip off everything that hinders us, as well as the sin which dogs our feet. And often this sin is just plain unbelief. That's the basic sin. And let us run the race that we have to run with patience, our eyes fixed on Jesus, the source and goal of our faith. For he himself endured a cross and thought nothing of its shame because of the joy he knew would follow his suffering. And he is now seated at the right hand of God's throne. Think constantly of him enduring all that sinful men could say against him And you will not lose your purpose or your courage. If we were going to ask, uh, what does God require of us in life? What's the basic requirement? There are various things that we could well think of. We know that the greatest commandment is that we should love God with all of our heart and love our neighbor as ourselves. And surely the highest thing God asks of us is love. We know that uh, blessing and uh, everything in the Christian life depends upon obedience. And we could very well say the basic thing God asks of us is obedience. It's of utmost importance. But if we're going down to something even more basic, something upon which true obedience and true love rest and from which they spring, I think we would have to say it's faith. God is looking for 
Today we'll say women of faith. Now faith is really important. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith it's impossible to please God. Down in verse 34, the verse I just mentioned said that these men, from, by faith, from being weaklings, they became mighty warriors. We need that, don't we? Ephesians 6.17 says that if we lift up the shield of faith, we'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of our enemy. Every one of them. And uh, Isaiah 26, 3 and 4 says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Perfect peace. Uh, Psalm 31, 19 says, Oh, how great is thy goodness, which thou hast laid up for them that fear thee, which thou hast wrought for them that trust in thee before the sons of men. Abundant goodness laid up for the enjoyment of those who trust in him. And if faith is so important, it might be well for us to just consider a bit, what is faith? Often we sort of think, if I only had more faith, just think what I could do. And in thinking this, we sort of think of faith as some quality that we store up within ourselves. And this is not what faith is at all. We don't accumulate it, we don't store up, store it up. And I think the simplest definition of faith is found in Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Our faith initiates in him, it's based on him, it's completed by him. And our part in having faith, in being women of faith, is just looking unto Jesus. But... Uh, another version says, our eyes fixed on Jesus. Uh, Tozer, in the book Pursuit of God, defines faith as the gaze of the soul looking unto Jesus. Hudson Taylor said he tried and tried to get faith till he finally decided and learned that it wasn't something he got. It was just looking off to the faithful one. Uh, we might define faith as confidence in God, a certainty that uh, is in our lives based on God, a quiet reliance upon him, of course, trust in him, a total dependence on him. All of this might be summed up in the idea of just looking to him. Uh, it's been said that uh, faith is the faculty of the heart whereby um, we experience spiritual realities. There are many truths that are, are facts. They're real. Just as real as that tree is green out there. But how do I experience the fact that the tree is green? I look at it with my eyes and through the sense of sight I experience in my own life the reality of the greenness of that tree. And faith is a sort of a sixth sense. It's the eyes of the soul whereby we look on God and experience the realities he has for us. It's looking unto Jesus. Now, 
If we were, uh, if faith is looking under Jesus, then lack of faith is probably looking somewhere else, isn't it? Depending on something else. And you and I spend too much of our time looking in the wrong direction. One place that we often look is about us. We look at our circumstances, either past ones or present ones or future ones. We um, look at problems, get our eyes all wrapped up in our problems, whether they're real or possible ones that may be coming. We get our eyes on people and rely on them. And ultimately, we find that we're disappointed. And we find that in the midst of all of this looking on the wrong things and getting occupied in the wrong thing, there's an unrest and a fear in our heart. Or else we look within. We look on ourselves. And don't we usually get discouraged? <laughs> at least I, if I look at myself, I generally get discouraged. Maybe some people feel pretty good. but <laughs> Or we look on our feelings. And we think uh, we're, we're very spiritual one day because we feel so great. But we're very unspiritual the next day because we feel miserable. And all our eyes are on our feelings. And it's been said, I looked at Jesus and a dove of peace flew into my heart. I looked at the dove of peace and it flew away. And faith is looking unto Jesus. Our eyes fixed on him. And because that is what faith is... Therefore, the basis of our faith is in God himself, Christ himself. And the way to develop our faith is to deepen our knowledge of him and to take time to look at him, to know him. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, I was reading in Psalm um, 9, came across verse 10. It says, those who know thy name put their trust in thee. What kind of people believe God? Those who know what he's like. Uh, Moffat said that those who know what thou art can trust in thee. What kind of people are able to trust in God? Those who know what he is. I wonder if we care enough to just diligently seek into his word and to give ourselves to seeking him with the prayer, God, I must know you better. Because, you know, to know him is to trust him. Now, for myself, I found many aspects of God which have been uh, so wonderful in just making it a simpler matter to just believe him and look to him and rely on him. And I'd like to just briefly this morning go into two of those aspects. We said that often we have lack of faith because we look at the wrong thing without us or the wrong thing within us. And I believe that both of these are sort of uh, taken care of when we really know God as the sovereign God without us and when we know him as the know Christ as the all-sufficient one dwelling within us the sovereign God working in our circumstances do we really believe this Ephesians 1:11 says that he works all things after the counsel of his own will all things. Now, to me, if whosoever in John 3.16 means just anybody, 
And all things here means all things. I mean, you can't take an inclusive uh, phrase in one verse and say it's true and not believe it in another verse. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. Isaiah 14:24 and 27 says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. The Lord of hosts has purposed, and who shall disannul it? We worship a sovereign God. That doesn't mean that this God desired in the first place, for instance, that uh, sin should be in the world. But when a person comes and trusts in Jesus Christ and becomes one of God's very own, then God will permit nothing to touch our life if he's not planning to work it in for a pattern for good, for our best good, for our eternal good. And this God, who is sovereign, and I wish there were time, but there isn't to go into more verses on the fact that he's of his uh, sovereignty, uh, this could just sort of make us fearful if we didn't realize that he loves us who know him in a very intimate, special way. As C.S. Lewis said, uh, when he had the senior devil writing advice to the junior devil, speaking of uh, the enemy, Christ, he said, the trouble with the enemy is he really loves the little vermin. And he really does. And so this sovereign God is working in love in our circumstances, permitting that only that which he means for our eternal good. Well, now, one day I thought about this and I thought, well, now, couldn't he work it out more for my good? <laughs> couldn't he really? And I just thought about it a little bit. I thought, well, now, he surely could work it out to make it easier for me. He could work it out more for my comfort. But God is true when he says that he was working for our good. He's not willing to let us go on with just a superficial happiness, which will ultimately be terminated because it's not based on reality. He's working for our uh, greatest and deepest joy here on earth and for our eternal benefit. I remember many times in the hospital, Dean would say to us, he has our best interests at heart. And he really does. And this is the God who's working. And what's the object of his planning? Many scriptures say that the trials that we go through are planned to perfect our faith. One of the basic things God is about is to perfect our faith. Because if he can do this, then he has the door open to do the other things he wants to do in our lives. J uh, James 1, 2 through 4 tells us this. Philippians, I mean, 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, isn't it? <laughs> the trial of our faith. And I believe that in perfecting our faith, God, first of all, has to bring us to the place where we don't rely on other things. If we're going to rely totally on God and look to and depend on only Him, then He first has to show us that anything else is not worthy of our total dependence. So many times he has to bring a lot of things in our lives to make us realize that we're totally insufficient in this game of life. We don't have within that which we need to meet it. We don't have 
outer props, friends, everyone, anything that we might look to depend upon, will ultimately fail us. And sometimes God has to let them fail us before we realize, uh, I must depend totally on God, and then he works. You know, when we're going through something hard, we have several temptations in it. One of them is, I wish it would get over in a hurry. God, maybe you permitted this, but please end it in a hurry. And uh, God doesn't often do like that. Think of the men in the Bible where God just permitted things to go on for years and years. David was anointed as king, and he fled in caves for maybe 13 years before he saw the end of this trial and the fulfillment of the promise. Moses was in the backside of the desert for 40 years, and he was finally 80 years old when he led the people of Israel out of Egypt. I could go on. But God is more interested in developing women of faith and of patience than he is in hurriedly doing what we want. He has our best interests at heart. Now, when we face trials, the biggest, often instead of, of taking the trial as a chance to get our eyes upon the sovereign God, we look elsewhere. Every trial or every difficulty or every joy that this uh, God brings into our lives or permits in our lives is meant to turn our eyes to him. Either uh, in thanking him from a joyful heart that because it's an obvious blessing or thanking him by faith because we know him. But often instead, we look elsewhere. We blame other people, for instance. Yeah, you can say... Uh, all you want about a sovereignty of God, but you don't know how my husband treats me. Or you don't know what my neighbor's like. If she would change, then I'd be different. Or you, you just don't know how my children act. I'd get through a day fine if they wouldn't start a quarreling with one another, maybe, is your problem. And so we blame someone else for our response. Or we blame someone else for the trial we're going through. And it's true that people around us often fail. And that God does not desire that they sin. But if we know Christ, then God permits that in our lives for our good. And we can look beyond it and thank a sovereign God. One man in scripture really demonstrates this to me, and that's Joseph. Joseph's brothers, out of bitter jealousy, took him and sold him as a slave. This meant that Joseph spent years in slavery and years and years in prison. This was the blackest thing his brothers ever did. Joseph could really have been resentful. Later in life, when God worked all this out in the final and in the final analysis for Joseph's good, certainly he was a second to Pharaoh in the land. And the brothers came in fear before Joseph, afraid he would take revenge. But Joseph acknowledged that it was the hand of a sovereign God who had permitted it, and he says, "You thought evil against me." But God meant it unto good. 
to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. And God used the trial to give Joseph position, a place of fruitfulness, to save him in the famine, to save the brothers in the famine, to save their father in the famine, to save multitudes of people alive. God meant it unto good. And because of this, no matter what may be the outer visible source of the things we go through, we can look and say, there's a sovereign God permitting it for my good. Therefore, God asks of us a certain type of response. In James 1, 2 through 4, in the Phillips translations, it says, my brothers, starts off, when all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, or this morning, my sisters, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends, realizing that they come to perfect your faith and to produce in you the quality of endurance. Welcome them as friends. The big things. Some of you women have gone through deep trials, and some of us may never know about them. Do you believe, do you, are you willing to thank God and say, God, you've permitted them for my certain good? And I don't understand a thing about them, but I'm going to thank you. I'm going to welcome that past trial even as a friend. By faith, not because I see it with my eyes, but because I know that a loving God is at work. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In everything give thanks. In everything. Again, that's an all-inclusive word. It doesn't say if you feel like it. It doesn't say if it's easy. It doesn't say if you understand it. But it says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. I personally have to be reminded of this frequently. When the little things go wrong, uh, sometimes I'll find myself uh, accepting it, yes, but sort of resignedly, well, I'll bear it. And then God has to remind me, Ruth, did I say to bear it or did I say to welcome it as a friend? And then I have to say, well, thank you, God, for this very thing. Not resigned acceptance, but acceptance with joy. Because we have our eyes in the right direction. We have them on a sovereign God. Paul says, we glory in tribulations also. And he goes on to say the reason is because he knows what they produce. So we have a sovereign God working in our circumstances. And you know, I think that one of the basic things that he's working toward is to give us a fuller and more constant realization that within we have an all-sufficient Christ. And basically, this is the secret of our inner struggles and problems, isn't it? The secret is Christ. In um, Colossians 1 and 2 in, in uh, Philip's, we read that God had a secret plan that he wanted to make known to certain people. And he speaks of the wonder and splendor of this plan. And then he says, 
It is the secret is simply this Christ in you. The secret is simply this Christ in you. Christ in you and you in him. He goes on to say, I long for you to grow more certain in your knowledge and more sure in your grasp of God himself. May your spiritual experience become richer as you see more and more fully God's great secret, Christ himself. For it is in him and in him alone that men will find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. These phrases are used frequently in scripture that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. But I wonder if they're more than just words to us. Have they made any difference in our day-by-day living? For instance, the word in Christ, it's been a help to me to see that Williams translates it in union with Christ. We are in union with Christ and Christ in us. Now, uh, this has been made more clear to me by the explanation that there are different aspects of our knowledge of God and of our concepts of uh, who he is and where he is. (laughs) And we need all of these aspects throughout all our lives. But often they come uh, in in a certain order to a young Christian. Often when the young Christian first receives Jesus Christ, they're You're just thrilled with the fact that now I have a Father in heaven who's watching over me and who will hear my prayer. Isn't that thrilling? And then a little later, they realize, well, it's even closer than that. He's not just in heaven. He's right here with me to hold my right hand and say unto me, Fear not, I will help thee. To be my shepherd and lead me in the right paths. To be my friend. And I can tell all my troubles to him and my joys and a constant companion. And don't we need this? Many times I just have to sit and listen to him say, I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. Just listen to him and know he's holding my hand. We need this. Then the young Christian realizes, was better than that even. The Bible says he's living in me. But even here sometimes, we need to understand it a little bit more fully. Because we're so used to thinking of physical things. And if you have two things in a desk, put these two books in this pulpit, and they're both in there, but they're side by side. I mean, how else could you do it? So we think of me in here and Christ in here, and this is very intimate and wonderful. And then the young Christian realizes, well, it's even closer than that. His spirit is dwelling right within my spirit. And my spirit in his spirit. First uh, Corinthians 6.17 in the Amplified Version says, The person who is united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Our spirits united. When we receive Jesus Christ, before we receive him, our spirit is darkened is separated from God. Our soul is depraved. Our body uh, is living uh, in sin, great or little sin. But when we receive Christ, Jesus Christ comes in and his spirit is united to our spirit. And this is the new birth, the very life of Jesus Christ within. And our spirit becomes one with his 
And this is the new creature. If any man be in Christ, be in union with Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And this is the perfect new life that God has put within us. Now, it helps me to think of it in various ways. Supposing that we were to decide to fill this room with uh, two gases. I should check on these gases. I'm not a chemist, and I don't know if these two would cause an explosion or not. But let's assume they wouldn't. We decide we're going to shut off the room, and we're going to fill it with carbon dioxide and hydrogen. And so we do. Well, it's not a ca the case that... This half of the room is all full of carbon dioxide and this half full of hydrogen. The molecules of both just permeate the entire room. And the one gas dwelling in the other gas, interpenetrating, intermingling, fill the room. That's the way Christ is in us and we in him. Well, let's suppose these two spoons. Here we come to them. <laughs> Finally. We want to unite these spoons. And so... Um, I say, Betty, won't you run out and get a string, a good strong one, because we want it to last. And so you hold them, and I just really tie it up tight, and they're united. But then we decide, no, that's not really very permanent. I got a better idea. Let's take it down to the shop and uh, say, fellows, we want them welded together, and uh, not just in one place, because we want a really a complete union welded all along there, and they're really together. But you know, we could unite them even more completely by melting them both down so that the molecules of one intermingle with the molecules of the other. And then one spoon is dwelling in, in the other. And it's a permanent, intermingling, indissoluble union. This is the way that Christ is in me and I in him. But you say, well, I don't see how you can believe it. You don't know how I act when my kids get uh, underfoot. You don't know how I respond when things go wrong. I don't thank God for them. Now we can start listing the things that we do that are not in accord with this. Well, how could it be true if he's dwelling in me in this way? Well, the fact is that we do have our old man there too. Now, uh, however... God has dealt with that old man. And I wish we had time to go into Romans 6. This shows that because we're united with Jesus Christ, we were included in his death and resurrection. And we died with him. And spiritually we were raised with him to walk in newness of life, to live in the new plane of life of this new man. And uh, our relationship to the old has been broken. Now that's what death means. Death means separation. Death is always separation. And when we say that, that we're dead as far as our old man is concerned, we don't mean that it's been annihilated so far. That someday will be, happen when Christ comes back. But we mean that there's a separation evolved so that we're freed from its power. And Romans 6 shows that sin used to be our nature. And sin used to be our master. But because we've been included in Christ's death and in his resurrection, sin is no longer our nature. Our nature is Christ, our new, this new union with him. Sin is our former nature. That's the way Philip's translation. And when we think of the old man, we should acknowledge that it's dead as far as we're concerned. It's my former nature. We're separated. It has no more claim over me, and I, and I reckon on this fact. And from this reckoning by faith in the fact 
Then we go on to say, and thank you, Lord, I've also been raised. Your resurrection life is within me, and I can live in triumph because of your life in me. A statement that did more than anything else to make me realize this was a statement by Trumbull that says, it's not only true that my life is Christ's, but my life is Christ." What is victory? Victory isn't basically a thing that we try to get hold of. Now I've got the victory. Or let me alone so I can get the victory. Victory is a person. Jesus Christ. And we cease to struggle to try to get him because we've got him and he's got us. We let him control us. We thank him that he is all sufficient within this very moment. He is my life. This moment. Dear old, there's a dear old uh, Dutch woman called uh, Corrie Ten Boom who travels all over the world encouraging missionaries. And I've heard her make the statement, Jesus Christ was victor. Jesus Christ is victor. Jesus Christ will be victor. So don't wrestle, just nestle. Jesus Christ was victor. Jesus Christ is victor. Jesus Christ will be victor. So don't wrestle. Just nestle. <laughs> right within us this very moment, he is victor. And we've got to count on him. Just thank him that it's true. What a What a relief. <laughs> We get confused because we uh, don't understand certain things. We don't understand that this is what God created us for, to be channels for his life, for the expression of his virtues, his love. This is what God made us for, the highest thing. And instead we sort of get the idea that we were created to be producers of virtue. God has given us eternal life, and now he says, now go to it. I've given you a book of rules, and boy, we need them. Don't let's ever think that because we may realize that Jesus Christ is our life that we don't need the book of rules. This is just the starting point to look into this from new light and to obey it more fully than ever before. But sometimes we almost feel he's given us the book of rules and then says, now you go and obey them and produce those things. And then he sits back and watches and see if we will. He never meant us to be producers of virtue. You never read that in the Bible. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything is of ourselves. And the, the qualities we want in our lives are called the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit isn't produced by, by working. The tree doesn't just grunt and groan and put forth a lot of effort to get that fruit to come forth. The tree abides in the soil and lets the, the water flow through the branches. And the fruit is produced. And the Holy Spirit, the life of Jesus Christ within, produces these fruits. We think sometimes, on the other hand, maybe we're sort of reservoirs of virtue. You know? God, give me love. And if we can only get enough of this love within us, then finally we'll be a little reservoir of love and won't it be nice? <laughs> you know, really, then we wouldn't even have to bother with all this of depending on the Lord, would we? Because there we've got it. <laughs> God loves us too much. 
to make a plan whereby we wouldn't have to depend upon him. Betty Stamm, the martyr in China, understood these things when she uh, made a little poem that says, I cannot live like Jesus, example though he be, for he was strong and selfless, and I am tied to me. I cannot live like Jesus. My soul is never free. My will is strong and stubborn. My love is weak and we. But I have asked my Jesus to live his life in me. And it's his wonderful triumphant life within that uh, day by day in effect causes our old man to have no power and produces in us what we desire. Bob Pierce, when we were in the hospital, Bob Pierce came through and spent uh, many hours visiting and he said, you know, more and more I'm seeing some things. And he says, in the morning when I get up, I tell God, God, if this day depends upon me in it, to any degree, it's going to be a miserable failure. But I'm not depending on me. I'm depending on your life in me. We start our day like this, going forth trusting that his life is sufficient within. And then, maybe about noon, the children come home for lunch, or uh, our roommate says something that just goes against our grain, and we respond wrongly, and then we think, oh, there's nothing to it. It wasn't true after all. Look what I just did. No, we just got our eyes in the wrong direction again. We got our dependence upon ourselves. And to our dying day, if we do this, there's going to be some expression of our old nature, our old man. And what we have to do then is say, now, God, I ask your forgiveness. We don't have to plead and beg with him to forgive. He loves to forgive so much that he let his son die to give him the privilege. I don't say this to encourage casual dealing with sin, but God forgives when we confess. And then we can say, thank you, Lord, you've forgiven. And now I'm going right back to the right basis. You've forgiven my unbelief, too. And now I'm depending on your life in me. And as we more and more, whenever we fail or whenever we're reminded of it, uh, practice this matter of looking to him and counting on his life, more and more it becomes an underlying habit of soul. That's the way we perfect other things, isn't it? By doing them. Sometimes this realization that Christ is our life will come upon us in just a, almost a flash. And we will, it'll be the easiest thing in life to believe it for maybe weeks and months and years. But sometimes God begins to show us how real this is and we get a glimpse of it. And then he wants us to practice it. Whenever, we're, whenever we start our day or whenever we start a new task or whenever we fail and are reminded of it or whenever... As often as we can, just to say, I thank you, Lord, that Christ is my life. And just like a child learning to play the piano, uh, Nancy, when you first began, you were probably conscious of every little motion, weren't you, of your fingers. And now it's the habit of her fingers. She doesn't even have to think of what they're doing to speak of. Being and Jean used to be so, uh, so know how to play their pieces that once in a while... <laughs> In the middle of a piece, Dean said he would think, oh, what are we playing? And then he'd have to quick turn his mind off so that his fingers would go on. And this more and more becomes the response of our soul to God as we know him better and as we practice just constantly saying, I thank you that you're my life.
right this moment. This is the moment we have to be concerned about. This is the only moment we have to live, isn't it? And so we say, I'm not going to worry about tomorrow, but right now, Jesus Christ is my life. This means a triumphant life. It means that we're reigning in life. Who are we united to? The one who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And Romans 5.17 says that they which we receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness should reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Should circumstances master us and get us under and get us bitter and resentful? No. We, have, uh, we can be more than conquerors through him that loved us as we believe the sovereign God and the sufficient Christ within. Should uh, our uh, sin master us? No, because we've been freed from its power and we have a new life. We're to reign in life. 2 Corinthians 2.14 Now thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph in union with Christ. And maketh manifest the fragrance of his knowledge by us in every place. Don't we want this? Don't we want wherever we go the sweet savor of the knowledge of Christ to go forth from our lives? This can be true of the very youngest Christian. As he realizes Christ is in him, he begins to he relies upon it and the fragrance of Christ is produced. Then as he goes on to know Christ better, more and more this life is goes into full bloom and is developed. Therefore, you see even a richer fragrance of the life of Christ in the saint who has lived this way for 10, 20, 50 years. But both are equally pleasing to God because they're believing him. They're looking to him. They're relying on him. And moment by moment as we go through life like this, beholding the glory of the Lord, counting on his life, beholding him in his word, in prayer, in circumstances, in other people even, the Spirit of God more and more transforms our being, our bodies, our whole soul to show forth the beauty of Christ in an increasingly fragrant way from glory to glory. But we've got to start by believing him now. And then by pressing on to know him better, and our faith will be more constant. We'll just more and more constantly look to him. And I believe that for me, the secret of believing, really believing, is praise. If I want to believe the sovereign God, I can try and try to believe it. But I find myself over the hump from trying to believe to really believing when I say, I start praising God. Lord, whether I feel like it or not. Jack Mitchell says to thank God when you don't feel like it is not hypocrisy, it's obedience. It's not hypocrisy, it's obedience, is what God told us to do. And when I start thanking God and praising him, then he takes over. And when I uh, realize, oh, I have, uh, for about an hour or two, I've just been treating the children, I've been impatient in my heart with the children. Maybe they know it, maybe they don't, but I have. And then I, I, uh, I get back to abiding by praising, confessing my sin and praising him that he is my life with him. Uh, dear old uh, southern preacher used to come to our school every year. Dad Bias was his name. Uh, old, homely, 
countrified preacher. And he used to stand up and just exalt Jesus Christ before us. And he said that outside of scriptures, and there's no comparison to scriptures, of course, this is the most complete revelation of God. This is where God lets us see himself most fully and so most completely develops our faith. But outside of scriptures, there's one thing written that meant more to him than anything else, and that is this poem, and I'd like to quote it as we close. It says, Live out thy life within me, O Jesus, King of kings. Be thou thyself the answer to all my questionings. Live out thy life within me. In all things have thy way. I, the transparent medium, thy glory to display. The temple has been yielded and purified from sin. Let thy Shekinah glory now flash forth from within, and all the earth keep silence. My body henceforth be thy humble, docile servant, moved only as by thee. Its members, every moment held subject to thy call, ready to have thee use them, or not be used at all. Held without restless longing, or strain, or stress, or fret, or chafing at thy dealings, or thoughts of vain regret. Be restful, calm, and pliant, from bend or bias free, permitting thee to settle where thou hast use of me. Live out thy life within me, O Jesus, King of kings. Be thou thyself the answer to all my questionings. Shall we pray? We believe, Lord, that thou art the answer. Thou art the secret. That the secret of being godly lies in God and the secret of being Christ-like lies in Christ, your Son. And Lord, what a blessed thing to seize from the burden of trying to manage ourselves and to depend upon you in our circumstances and in our hearts. And Lord, even as we just left all the burden of our life, of our uh, sins, and rested upon the atoning work of your Son, so we choose, Lord, to leave all the burden of our life and of our service and rest on your present in working. And we uh, go forth, Lord, praising you, that as the sovereign God, you don't deal with us easily, but you work for our certain good. And that you have provided this wonderful plan whereby we can enjoy your very life, united with ours within. And we thank you that right now, you're our life. Lord, we would pray you'll deliver us from complacency, and by your very spirit and life within, put within us a deeper desire to know you, to seek you in your word to see you more fully that more and more our souls will gaze off and see you and believe and open the door for you to do all the things you're longing to do in jesus name amen